Play's Ark by Octavia Butler, read by Fleabag Anus. Past 23. Mida wanted a girl. Eli merely wanted Mida to survive and be well. When that was certain, he would concern himself with the child. He worried about her in spite of his confidence that in, in the organism's ability to keep its host alive. This was something new, after all. None of the Ark's crew had been able to have children during the mission. Their anti-conception implants had been timed to protect them and had worked in spite of the organism since no doctor had survived to remove them. Before the Ark left, there had been discussion of the unlikely possibility, emphasised by the media and de-emphasised by everyone connected with the programme, that the crew might find itself stranded and playing Adams and Eves on some alien world. Thus, the effectiveness of the implants was intended to last only through the time allotted to the mission and the quarantine period scheduled to follow it. In spite of everything, Eli had been pleased to discover that his was worn off, had worn off right on time. Another fear played up by the media and down by everyone else was the possibility that faster-than-light travel might have some negative effect on conception, pregnancy and childbirth. The Dana drive that powered the arc involved an exotic combination of particle physics and personics. Paras parapsychological mumbo-jumbo, it had been called when Clay Downer presented it. Even when he was able to prove everything he said, even when others were able to duplicate his work and his results, there were outspoken sceptics. After years of tedious, uncertain observation of so-called psychic phenomena, after years of trickery by psychic charlatans, some scientists in particular found their prejudices too strong to overcome. But the majority were more flexible. They accepted Dana's work as proof of the psychonic potential, specifically the psychokinetic potential of just about everyone. Some saw this potential in military terms, the beginnings of a weapons delivery system, as close to teleportation as humanity was likely to come. Others, including Clay Downer himself, saw it as a way to the stars. Clay Downer and his supporters demanded the stars. They had clearly feared turn-of-the-century irrationality, religious overzealousness on one side, destructive hedonism on the other, with both heated by ideological intolerance and corporate greed. The Downer faction feared humanity would extinguish itself on Earth, the only world in the, in the solar system that could support human life. There were always hints that the Dana people knew more than they were saying about this possibility. But what they said in Congress, in the White House, to the people by way of the media, turned out to be enough, to the amazement of the opposition. The Dana faction won. The art programme was begun. The first true astronauts, star voyagers, began their training. Because of the psychokinetic element, a human crew was essential. The Dana Drive was amplified and directed. The Dana Drive amplified and directed human psychokinetic ability. 
Surprisingly, some people had too much psychokinetic potential. These people could not be trusted with the drive. They overcontrolled it, affected it when they did not intend to. Made prototypes of the clay's art dance, of course. Only strange old Clay Downer tested out as having too much ability, yet was able to control his drive with a psionic feather touch. Psionic feather touch. Both Eli and Deesa had been able to pilot the prototypes and later the Ark itself. This meant they were psychonically ordinary. And for some reason, old Dana had taken a liking to them, though Deesa admitted to being a little afraid of him. And what she felt about Dana was what a lot of people watching their TV walls felt about the Ark crew and backup crew. People were curious, but a little afraid and envious. Earth was becoming less and less a comfortable place to live. Thus it was necessary that the crew have weaknesses and face serious dangers. People knew children had been born on the moon and in space safely, but the gossip networks with their video phone in shows and their instant polls, their interviews and popular education classes jacked up their ratings with hours of discussion of whether or not faster than light travel could be dangerous to pregnant women and their children. There is even a retrogressive women's protection movement intended to keep women off the ark. Eli and Diesel were too busy to pay much attention to TV nonsense, as they thought of it, but they went along when the implants were proposed. And Eli left frozen sperm behind just in case, and Diesel left several mature eggs. Now Eli wished somehow that his frozen sperm could have been used to impregnate Mither. He knew this was not a reasonable wish under the circumstances, but he was not feeling very reasonable. He watched Mida, He watched Lorene walk Mida back and forth across the room. Mida did not want to walk, but she had tried both sitting and lying down. These, she said, made her feel worse. Lorene walked her slowly, said it would not do her any harm. Lorene had had some nursing experience at a birth centre before she married. She had trained to be a midwife to women too poor to go to better hospitals and too frightened to go to the others. Mida stopped for a moment beside Eli's chair, rested her hand heavily on his sh- on his shoulder. What are you doing? she asked, feeling guilty and helpless. He only looked at her. He patted his shoulder. She patted his shoulder. Men are supposed to feel that way. They do in the books I've read. He could not help himself. He laughed, stood up kissed her wet forehead and walked with her a little until she wanted to sit down in the big armchair. He was surprised she did not want to lie down, but Lorene did not seem surprised, so he said nothing. He pulled another chair over and sat beside her. He held her hand and listened as she panted and sometimes made low noises in her throat as the contractions came and went. He was terrified for her, but he sat still, trying to show strength and steadiness. She was doing all the work, after all, pushing and enduring the pain and risk, giving birth to their child without the medical help she might need. If she could do that and hold together, he could hold together too, right? She never screamed or used any of her profanity that she'd picked up from him. In fact, she seemed surprised that the birth happened so easily. The baby, when it came, looked like a grey, hairless monkey, Eli thought. By the time Lorene had tied and cut the cord and cleaned the baby up, it was not grey anymore. 
a healthy brown. Irene wrapped it in a blanket and handed it to Mida, still in her chair. Mida examined it minutely, touching and looking, crying a little and smiling. Finally, she handed the child to Eli. He took it eagerly, needing to hold it and look at it and understand that this was his son. The baby never cried, but it was clearly breathing well. Its eyes were calm and surprisingly lively. Its arms were long and slender, without the baby pudginess. Without the baby pudginess that Eli had expected, but he had no real idea of how a newborn baby should look, actually, anyway. Maybe they grew pudgy later, or maybe Clay's out babies never grew pudgy. It was enough that this baby seemed healthy and alert. Its eyes were doubled against its body, but freed of the blanket, they straightened. Its legs were doubled against the its body, but freed of the blanket, they straightened a little and kicked in the air. They were as long and slender as the arms, and the feet were long and narrow. Eli looked at the little face, and the child seemed to look back curiously. He wondered how much it could see. It had a forehead of thick, curly black hair and large ears. When it yawned, Eli saw that it already had several teeth. That could make nursing hard on Mida, perhaps. Eli reached for a tiny, thin hand, and the boy grasped his finger surprisingly tightly. After a moment, Eli grinned. The child startled him by smiling back at him. Somehow it did not seem to be mirroring his grin. Its smile seemed almost sly, the unbaby-like gesture of someone who knew something he was not telling. Present 24 Somehow Blake lost track of time. He was aware of sporadic shooting, aware that the house was under siege, that Rain and Kira was first with him and then gone. He worried about them when he realised that they were gone. Wondered where they were. He worried about his own helplessness and confusion. Once the man called Badger came in to see him, bringing several other people along. The group shouted and stank and made Blake feel sicker than ever, all but one woman. She was no cleaner than the others, but her scent was different, compelling. She was just another car rat, but he found himself reaching out to her, groping for her with his cuffed hands. He heard shouts of laughter, and then her voice, low and mocking. Hey there, she said, taking his hands. You're not going to die on us, are you? No one will buy you back dead. She had a deep, throaty voice that would have been sexy had it not been so empty of caring. He knew she was laughing at him, at his pain, at his helplessness, even at his interest in her. He knew, but all he could think about was that he wanted her. He could not help himself. As scent drew him irresistibly, he tried to pull her down beside him. She laughed and pulled away. Maybe later, Wally, she whispered. At least she had the kindness to whisper, not shout like the others. He was confused for a moment by her calling him Wally. She knew his name. They all did. Then, murkily, he realised that she was referring to the fact that he lived in a walled enclave. He worried whether he would ever see it again. The woman nudged him with her foot. How about that, she said. Want me to come back in when you're feeling better? Her friends brayed out their laughter. But she did come back that night, and this time she only pretended to mock him as she unbound his hands and feet. Don't do anything dumb now. You hurt me or you get outside this room and Badger will cut your head off. 
He opened his eyes and saw that she was nude, kneeling down beside him on the rug of his bare room. She fumbled with his belt. Let's see what you've got here, Wally. Big old rifle or little handgun? For a moment he thought she was Mida, but her hair, now free of the scarf she had worn before, was startlingly white. She was a tall, sun-brown woman, plump but not really fat. Her scent was incredible. It so controlled him he could not focus on whether she was pretty or not. It did not matter. He could not have thought that he had the strength to hold her as he did with his newly freed hands and make love to her once and again and again. In the end, the woman seemed surprised herself and pleased, willing to drop some of her Kara emotional armour. Without being asked, she got up and got a blanket from somewhere. He remembered Rain and Kira and tried um, trying to beg for beg trying to beg for a blanket for him and being refused. When he asked the woman for food, she brought him a cold beer and a plate of bread and roast beef and left that was left over from the car gang's dinner. The gang, sealed in it as it was, had been living off the ranch family's large pantry and freezer. The meat was too well done and too highly seasoned for Blake's newly sensitive taste, but he ate it anyway. The gang fed him as well as they ate himself, but it was not enough. It was never enough. He consumed the extra meal ravenously. You eat like a damn coyote, the woman complained. You want some more? He nodded, his mouth full. She got him more and watched while he ate. He wondered why she stayed. He did not mind. He did not want to be alone. The food made him feel much better, less totally focused on his discomfort. Who the hell are you anyway? he asked. Smoke she said, touching her hair. Smoke, he muttered. First badger, now smoke. Those are our family names, she said. We don't keep the same names once we're adopted into a family. My name before was Petra. He smiled. I like I like that better, he said. Thank you, Petra. To his surprise, she blushed. Are my daughters all right, he asked. She looked surprised. They're okay. They say you screamed at them to get out. Hell, we heard you screaming. Um, with what you were calling them, we didn't figure they were your blood daughters. We thought you might hurt them. Screaming, Blake thought. He did not remember. Screaming at Rain and Kira. Why? Fragments of what seemed to be a dream began to drift back to him. But it was not a dream. But it was a dream of Jorah, his wife, not of the girls. Jorah smooth and dark as bit sweet chocolate, soft and gentle, or so people thought when they saw her or heard her voice. Later they discovered the steel, the softness disguised in her. The dream recaptured him slowly, and he could see her as she'd been with the cesspool tids, kids that she taught. The kids liked her, or at least respected her. They knew she cared about them. The bigger, more troublesome ones knew that she had a gun. She was too idealistic for her own good, but she was not suicidal. He saw her as she had been when he'd met her at UCLA. He was going to fight diseases of the body and she, diseases of a society that seemed to her too short-sighted and too indifferent to survive. She preached at him about old-fashioned, long-lost causes. Human rights, the elderly, the ecology, throwaway children, corporate government, the vast rich-poor gap and the shrinking middle class. She should have been born twenty or thirty years earlier. She could not get particularly involved. He could not get particularly involved in her causes. He did not believe that there was anything he could do to keep the country, the world, from flushing itself down the toilet. 
He meant to take care of his own and do what he could for the others, but he had few illusions. Still, he could not keep away from her. She was an earlier, happier compulsion. He let her preach at him because he was afraid if he did not, she would find someone else with open ears. He knew her family did not like her interest in him. They were people who had worked themselves out of one of the worst cesspools in the Southland. They had nurtured Jorah's social conscience too long to let it fall victim to a white man who had never suffered a day in his life and who thought social causes were passé. He married her anyway, had two daughters with her, even acquired something of a social conscience through her. Eventually, he began putting in time at one of the cesspool hospitals. It was like trying to empty the Pacific with a spoon, but he kept at it as she kept at her teaching until a young sewer slug blew away most of the back of her head with a new submachine gun. The slug was 13 years old. He did not know Jura. He had just stolen the gun and wanted to try it out, and Jura was just there at the wrong time. Why had Blake dreamed of her now? And recalled her so vividly? And what did she have to do with his driving Rain and Kira away? Are they really your kids? He jumped looked around and was surprised to see that Petra was still there. The two girls, are, are they actually your kids? Of course, Blake said. Shit, I felt sorry for them, Petra said. You were calling them sluts and whores and slugs and sewage. Everything you can think of. One of them was crying. But, but why would I do that? Blake asked. You're asking me? Hell, who knows? You hit your head pretty hard on the steering wheel. Maybe you just went crazy for a while. But... But why, he thought, why had he dreamed of Jorah? Such a realistic dream as though she was with him again, as though the utterly senseless killing had never happened, as though he could touch her, love her again. Kira, he thought suddenly. His mind flinched away from thinking of her. She was a too thin, too frail, younger version of Jorah, and she had that same incredible skin. And she had, Blake knew, more of her mother's steel than most people realised. Christ, he thought, had he tried to rape Kira? Had he? The girl was so weak. Could he have tried and failed? Jesus, he whispered. You okay? Petra asked. He looked at her, suddenly realising that she was only a few years older than Rain and Kira, a young girl still able to drop the Kara identity and take pleasure in doing so. I'm all right, he lied. Listen, now that you've told me about the girls, I have to see them, one of them at least. I have to apologise. Petra looked away. I don't know if I can bring them. He understood her and wished he had not. The girls might not be. The girls might not be alone. Try, he said, please. Okay. But she stopped to kiss him and he was caught up again in the scent and feel of her. She giggled like a delighted child and lay down with him again. By the time she went away and came back with Kira, he was badly frightened. He was no longer in control of himself. Tiny microbes controlled him, had forced him to have sex with a young girl when an instant before sex had been the furthest thing from his mind. What had made him do that to his daughter? What had they made him do to his daughter? Kira came into the room much as she had come into another room how many days ago. Eli had released her then for a few painful minutes. Who had released her this time? God, what would Jorah think of the way he was taking care of their children? Dad? Kira asked. 
She had a bruise on the side of her face. It was swollen and puffy. She could not conceal the fact that she did not want to go near him. And heaven help him. Her scent was as good as Patches had been. Did I hit you? He asked, looking at her swollen face. She shook her head. Rain did. Why? He asked. She stared at him for several seconds. You don't remember, do you? She took a step farther back from him. Jesus, I, I wish I didn't remember. He said nothing, could not make himself speak. She went to the window, pushed the drape aside and seemed to examine the frame. This house won't burn, she said. Light it and go. it will smoulder a little and then go out. Eli's people have tried lighting it a few times. I think one of them was shot in the attempt. They tried to burn the house with us in it. Badger called for help on his radio. They heard him, or if they didn't hear him, they heard me when I repeated what he said next to the kitchen window. She turned to face him. I can hear them sometimes, Dad. When the car people aren't making too much noise, I can hear them talking. I heard Eli. Saying what? That if everything goes okay, the car people will go over to him with, when their symptoms begin. If it doesn't, if the help Badger called for actually comes, Eli might have to sacrifice us. Sacrifice? They have some explosives already planted. They don't want to do it, but, well, they can't let anyone in the house leave. Kerry, did I rape you? He had said the words, and somehow they had not choked him. She swallowed, went to the door, and stood beside it. Almost, she said. Oh God, oh God, I'm sorry. I know, she said. Rain stopped me? Yes, she hesitated. Rain stopped us. I, um, I wasn't exactly fighting. He frowned, repelled and uncomprehending. Don't look at me like that, Kira said. I know how I smell to you and how you smell to me. I had to see you to be sure you were okay, but I'm afraid of you and of myself. It's so crazy. Rain hit me mostly to get my attention, so I'd stop fighting her when she tried to pull me away. She said when she hit you, you didn't seem to feel it. Kira rubbed her face. I sure felt it. Blake moved away from her because he wanted to move towards her so badly. Were you hurt otherwise? No, she said. How do you feel? He asked. She stared past him, surprising him with the beginnings of a smile. Hungry, she said. Hungry again. Kira believed she was going to live. She felt stronger and hungry. Her hearing was startlingly keen. That was enough for her. The fact that she was still captive, still the carrier of a dangerous disease, still caught between warring gangs, had almost ceased, all of this had ceased, almost ceased to matter to her. Those things could not cease to matter to Blake. When Petra had taken Kira away, he went over to the bare room as he could not have with Bert. When Petra had taken Kira away, he went over the bare room as he could not have done with bound hands and feet. He peeled back the rug, looking for loose flooring. He examined the walls, even the ceiling. Finally, he examined the closet-like bathroom, a toilet, a sink, and a tiny window that did not open. None of the windows opened. The air conditioning was good. The air stayed fresh and probably would until Eli decided to foul it. But with the air conditioning ducts were too small to be of use to Blake. Because he was desperate, Blake tried pushing at the glass or the plastic in the window. 
It was only one small pane. It might be breakable. It did not break. But the frame did give a little. Blake took off his shirt, wrapped his right hand in it, and as quietly as he could, began trying to pound the entire window out. Even if he had knocked it loose, the hole would be almost too small to crawl through. But he felt stronger now, and anything would be better than sitting around like a caged animal, waiting for someone else to decide his fate. When his right hand tired, he continued the pounding with his left. The muffled sound was loud to him, but no one else seemed to notice. He realised now that he could not trust his hearing to tell him what sounds might be reaching normal people. Finally, the window fell out onto the ground. The noise that it made when it hit and bumped against the house was loud. Blake heard someone call out, and then he heard the sound of approaching motors. Frightened, he hesitated. Kira had said that Badger had called for reinforcements. What if he escaped from one group into the hands of another? On the other hand, if he stayed where he was, the window would be discovered and he would be shackled again. They would take no more chances with him. As the sounds of approaching motors grew louder, he made up his mind. He was at the rear of the house. He could not see the road or the approaching cars or cycles, so he was certain that the newcomers would not be able to see him. Eli's people might see him, but he did not think they would shoot. He hoped they would escape. He could escape them too and get real help, medical help, finally. Meanwhile, he prayed that they would rescue the girls and keep them safe, since he could no longer trust himself near them. He feared that if he reached a town, a hospital, his chances of seeing the girls again would be slim. They would be going into Eli's world, going underground, becoming whatever organism would, the organism would make of them. He would beginning, be beginning a war against the organism. He managed to squeeze out of the window, leaving a little skin behind, and dropped quietly to the ground. He ran towards the rocks, expecting every moment to be shot in the back or accosted from the rocks by Eli's people. But in front of the house, the approaching cars had arrived and the shooting had begun and all the hostilities were there. Blake ran on. From the rocks, he could climb into the hills and get a good look around. He could find out where the road was to figure out which way was north. He could head for Needles, on foot this time. He could do the necessary things, give his warnings, get the research started. He moved quickly, but with no feeling of triumph this time. He wondered whether Rain and Kira would understand his leaving them. He wondered whether they would forgive him. He knew better than suppose he would forgive himself. A jackrabbit leapt into his path and without thinking he leapt after it, caught it, snapped its neck. Before he could reflect on what he had done, he heard human footsteps. And before he could take cover in the rocks, someone shot him. He felt a burning in his left side. Terrified, he dropped the dead rabbit and fled to the shelter among the rocks. Moments later, frightened and hurting, he stopped. Someone was following him noisily, perhaps trying to get another clear shot. He concealed himself behind a jagged wedge of rock, and he waited. <laughs>